Content warning, BDSM, anti-Asian racism, orientalism, spousal abuse, and human taxidermy? Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. this incredible popularity of the Queen of the Underworld come from? Even if you knew nothing of her, her beauty, her ebullient gestures and actions, her incredible luxury, the munificent amounts of jewelry she wore, no matter which of these aspects you examined, she was every inch her queen, but she possessed an even more wonderful fascination. She was an indefatigable exhibitionist. Dark Angel, show us the jewel dance again. Once one person asked, they all clamored, and again applause erupted. The band in the corner began to play again. An erotic saxophone tickled the ears of the listeners eerily. She had already started the jewel dance. In the middle of the crowd, the dark angel transformed into the angel of light. All her beautiful and flush body wore was a double strand of large pearls around her neck, incredible jade earrings, bracelets peppered with countless diamonds, and three rings on her fingers. She wore no thread or scrap of cloth. She had become nothing more than a lump of flesh. Scintillating as she undulated her arms, kicked her feet, and skillfully danced the captivating motions of the ancient Egyptian court. Look, the black lizard has begun to crawl. It's wonderful. You're right, the tiny lizard is moving, alive. The young men in their chic tuxedos whispered and bobbed. On the left arm of the beautiful woman, a pitch-black lizard was wriggling. As her arm moved, it appeared to move its suction pad, tipped feet, and crawl. It seemed as if it would crawl from shoulder to neck, neck to chin, and to her red and shining lips. But somehow the creature stayed wriggling on her arm all the time. It was a black lizard tattoo, made to look incredibly real. The Black Lizard, 1934, by um, Itogawa Rampo. Um, hi, welcome to What Mad Universe. Uh, I'm Philip Rice, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. Hello. And today we're joined by special guest Ing. Hi. And uh, we'll be talking about a uh, Japanese detective story. Well, uh, a story featuring the Japanese detective Akechi Kagoro, or Kagoro Akechi if you're nasty. Uh, <laughs> the, his, his given name is Kagoro, and his uh, uh, family name is Akechi. In the Japanese language, it's the family name first, and then the given name. And Yeah, so we'll, we'll be probably using both interchangeably. Um, a character created by um, a uh, Japanese novelist named uh, uh, Itogawa Rampo, uh, which is an alias. Uh, of uh, His real name was Taro uh, Hirei, um, and Itogawa Rampo is a, uh, 
a pun name. It's um, basically the the name uh, Edgar Allan Poe said in a thick Japanese accent, <laughs> and it's Edgar got some Allen other Poe. Yeah. yeah, it's got some other uh, puns in it, um, like Itagawa River, uh, and apparently some of the characters mean different things in yeah, ways that don't it- quite. Yeah, Idogawa means like wandering along the river Ido in a way that could be in like it, that has a parallel with like wandering and investigating things. Like it, it has a connotation of that. So yeah, it's got like multiple puns going on essentially. And the characters used to make up uh, the kanji writing of it add in additional puns because hmm. Jap- Japanese yeah. is a a phenomenal language for puns that do not translate into English. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, wh- one of the books I read for this episode, um, uh, the introduction had like a uh, explanation of all the puns in the name, and like these do not—they're not funny because you're just explaining what they mean. But like in the actual language, you know, they're—it's very in, witty. It's, we assure yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> but it's uh, also something uh, Itagara Rampo a little. Uh, short there, he's kind of seen as a bit of the like the grandfather or progenitor of Japanese detective and mystery stories. Yes, yes, um, that that's important. There were Japanese uh, mis- mystery uh, stories before him, but he really um, was uh, instrumental in making it a, a a mainstream thing and a respected thing among um, um, mystery writers in general. Yeah, the, um, the, the, the article I saw uh, framed it as, like, before that, there were sort of, like, tacky, well, hacky versions of it, of, like, oh, you have an identical twin, and, like, they would rely on, or they'd rely on the supernatural, I think, uh, things that basically weren't possible, and they there was sort of a, uh, this seems to have been echoed all in many different countries, where people sort of went from, well, there's mystery stories but then there's you know the ones where they actually said okay it has to play fair it has to play by the rules there can't be any supernatural elements there can't be any like wild coincidences it has to be maybe not solvable but you have to be able to look back on it and go okay that makes sense i see what happened from a to b to c kind of thing and i think he was the one who really uh, like th- that happened in in various European and, and it happened in America where they started to say, well, that's not a real mystery story unless you do this. And it sounds like he was the one who sort of commodified that in Japan. Um, yeah, yeah, that that's, sounds reasonable. Like not not being an expert in previous uh, Japanese mystery writers, I can't really comment directly, but that that seems likely. Um, um, yeah, apparently his uh, his first um, Akechi story. Akechi is his most popular character by far, um, though he has some uh, recurring villains that are also have their own sort of um, fan bases and stuff. But um, Akechi is a um, uh, considered sort of the the Japanese Sherlock Holmes, though he um, has has a lot of differences with Holmes as well. Um, the first Akechi story was uh, from 1925. Is a short story called the case on the case of the murder on D Hill, um, which is um, uh, apparently was was written by uh, um, Rampo because he was trying to disprove the idea that uh, locked room mysteries wouldn't work in Japan because at the time uh, uh, you know Japanese houses were made of bamboo and paper. <laughs> I'm so, thinking of Homer Simpson blasting through yeah. the wall every time they go to Japan. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, um, 
Yeah, so that's the idea. He was trying to disprove that or prove that uh, locked room mysteries could still work in this um in this setting. So the the story is like a <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um right. Um I'm pretty sure they still had secure rooms in Japan. They did, not everything. Like, they had castles. For I, I know, sake. I know, but <laughs> mo- most like common houses were. Yeah. Um and the the uh the case in the story uh actually involves i i found it very amusing uh there's um uh somebody's viewed through uh lattices uh in the um by by a couple witnesses that you know the lattices in um on the walls um and the uh one person says the kimono is black and the other one says the kimono is white and the uh the narrator of the story the the unnamed um narrator Mm -hmm. says um Goes to Akechi and says, "I think I figured it out. the The stripes are, or the um, kimono is actually striped black and white, and the two different people were viewing it from different angles and right. saw, you know, one saw just the white ones and one saw the black ones." And Akechi said, "I mean, that's interesting, but it doesn't seem very likely. It's probably more likely that one or more of the witnesses just was mistaken." <laughs> like, and he cited a bunch of cases of. Uh, witnesses having poor memories and uh or like forgetting you know the what kind of hat somebody a suspect was wearing or that sort of thing which is really common like witness testimony is very unreliable yeah has has been actually has been uh more widely accepted that the in actual legal proceedings that witness testimony is actually very unreliable that people's uh memories are fuzzy and that they uh, unconsciously sort of uh, backtrack to fit things once a uh, narrative is developed. It's very interesting, actually. Hmm. Yeah, and the um, uh, it's especially interesting because reading the the backstory of this of this story, uh, that was apparently the the impetus for like that was the initial idea um, that inspired the rest of the story. Uh, and um, Rampo showed it to some of his friends, who said that seems kind of preposterous. Um, and so he he worked it into the story as the, you know, detective who's not very good, his guess at it, and then had his, like, great detective um, immediately disprove it. Yeah, that actually reminds me of when they did the uh, the first, correct me if I'm wrong here, but when the, the first adaptation of the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock, uh, they did Study in Scarlet, and he... he, he the, the, the murder, or the, the victim was scratching the word rash on the wall on the on the on the ground and uh if i recall correctly in the original story it was because he was writing the word revenge in german yeah and and the other detective said it must be rachel and then in the in the uh, benedict cumberbatch they switched them around so sherlock holmes is always right even if he comes to the opposite conclusion he did in the other version yeah which I have to admit, that's like he's kind of correct. I know that's kind of a dunk on Edgar, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, but that is kind of true. Like it's more <laughs> likely that they would be trying to scratch out a name in their last moments than writing the word revenge. You know, anyway. In German, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, Akechi was different in the uh, in the early stories. Uh, one one of the uh, three books I read for this. There's a lot of Akechi stories, but I read three of them. Um, yeah, that's uh, it. The a. Uh, John, uh, geez, let me try to pronounce this name. John uh, Postolo, editor of the book Murder in Japan, is quoted as saying that the sum total of all Japanese mysteries translated into English 
is fewer than a single month's output of Japanese mystery stories. Yeah. So, yeah, like saying that uh, Rampo popularized the mystery genre in Japan is a big deal. It's a big literary genre. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and there's a lot of lot of individual Akechi novels. I think actually most of the Akechi novels have been translated because it's a pretty popular character, yeah. but I only read I only read three of them. One of them was called The Early Cases and it was a collection of short stories and one novella um featuring like the you know what it sounds like the early uh, Akechi stories where he's not quite fully formed as he would be later. Uh early early Akechi was like uh, a a student. Um he was like in his in his early 20s. Uh, he had long, wild hair that he was always brushing his hands through, like unconsciously, as like a nervous tick. Uh, he wore um, like ratty kimonos. Uh, he he did, you know, wasn't very well kept. Um, his uh, his apartment was like a small flat that had no furniture, just uh, piles of books that he used as furniture. Hmm. Um, Relatable. Uh, yeah, and as the um, as the uh, uh, these short stories go on, he. Um, apparently in between them spent some time in um in uh, india and china and he was starting to wear uh chinese robes uh and he it described him as now he was looked like kind of a dandy and by the time he, he's sort of fully formed he's wearing western clothes and he's you know very well put together and staying in a luxurious apartment and stuff or uh, i think he lives in a hotel room usually um so yeah, that, that's sort of interesting seeing a, a character um, uh, evolve in that way. Because uh, Akechi wasn't initially intended as a recurring character. He was just this was just a um, murder on D Hill was just supposed to be a one off. But uh, people sort of responded to the character, and um, uh, Rampo kept you know using him and and evolving his personality. It, 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 that is interesting that the 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 detective who's a slob. And this would be the 20s when this was published, right? Yeah, that was uh, 25. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that, it's funny how that's a recurring thing in all over the world, you know, from Colombo and even to a certain extent Sherlock Holmes, although he's not, you know, he's not so yeah, much a he dresses as well, he but a mess he often in has... his personal life, yeah. Yeah. And that's, of course, the classic thing of just, uh, like, TV cops often being, like, huge slobs and not being able to you know living in a pile of garbage when they're not solving cases the the other ja the only other like major japanese like mystery detective story that i'm familiar with is uh, death note oddly enough i watched the anime <laughs> of that and um that also has like a like a detective who's like a quirky i guess not a huge slob but he's like famously like eating in every scene and he's just kind of a weirdo and he doesn't I, know how to like sit properly yeah i feel thing. like l is uh, l's definitely taken some inspiration from Akechi. Like, it would be impossible not to, but especially the early ones where he's a bit more of a weirdo. Well, in Death Note, there's literally, like, a, a, de like a school that churns out yeah. Akechis or Holmeses or whatever you want to call them, brilliant detectives. And most of them are, like, young kids, too, which is hilarious. Um, but so I, I think that kind of may be reflecting the popularity of the genre in Japan. I, if I had to guess, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I don't know. But, yeah, feels like it. Um, yeah, so I was I was aware of uh, Akechi as a character, but I hadn't read any of his stories, um, and uh, I was going to be looking into them for the current issue of my uh, webcomic, uh, The Apex Society, Google Apex Society plus webcomic, because there are now a 
I mean, there were a bunch of other things called Apex Society, apparently, so yeah. uh, <laughs> that's annoying. But, um, uh, yeah, the current issue is actually a, a tribute to uh, Lupin the Third, the anime. Um, uh, and the Lupin is the stand-in is um, uh, Akira Naruse, who was a, um, um early uh, Japanese uh, silent film that's um, unfortunately lost. But they it's just a, a Arsene Lupin adaptation, but with the names changed and the characters made Japanese uh, because Japan's always had a fascination with Lupin as a character. Um, so I just used We're that We're talking char- about the original uh, thief character who was a French thief, right? Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, Lupin the third the Japanese- is... is yeah, is the yeah. descendant of that character. Right, right. And in the Lupin the Third series, he, of course, has had at least one encounter with the descendant of uh, Kachi. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, yeah, uh, Akechi is, uh, shows up in... Um, or is referenced in a few uh, uh, Lupin the Third things. Uh, the original pilot uh, for, for the show had Akechi as... Um, like an additional detective who was going after him, uh, as well as uh, Zenigata, um, like an old Akechi. Um, though uh, that, that didn't translate into any subsequent versions. Uh, but there was, uh, there was a one-off character who was like a combination of Sherlock Holmes, Akechi, and another Japanese detective character. Um, yeah, his name and possibly others, his name was very long and included a bunch of just literary ones i guess implying that he's somehow the descendant of all those families and that's why he's <laughs> such a great detective <laughs> yeah oh i i checked it it's uh uh kosuke holmes akechi <laughs> and he and he wore just like layers of different clothing on him <laughs> i guess the like the various um you know signature outfits of these characters <laughs> He was uh, a Frankenstein made up of all the br- <laughs> the brilliant detectives in the world, yeah. sewn together. He, he yeah. so yeah. far has only one appearance in the loop in the third series, but it is very memorable and enough to like it shows up in like cameos and references to uh, references of like uh, Lupin's uh, greatest adversaries when it comes up. Yeah, and he's got uh, he's got like a girl gang or at least two uh, female sidekicks. One of who's dressed like a cute Sherlock Holmes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, sexy Sherlock Holmes. Rule forty three. Which one is it? Sherlock Holmes. Sixty. <laughs> yeah. Sixty something. Sixty. Whatever. Um, sixty three is the porn one. Thirty four. Chris is informing yeah. me it's rule thirty four. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, <laughs> and uh, also. Uh, uh, and uh, Ing had actually uh, mentioned the Black Lizard specifically, but I, I uh, as often happens when people suggest books, I said, okay, I'll look into it. Um, and I didn't, but I, uh, me and Ing were watching um, a uh, Lupa and the Third uh, episode, um, uh, a two-parter from, uh, I think it was just last season, right? Like the most the recent most one most recent did? series, I believe. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, this is, like, I think it was part eight or seven or some whatever. It's it's a little confusing because there's additional series. Yeah, there, that... there's a whole other podcast pilot that I did with Adam called Explanime that I will get edited and try to get out that actually goes full into Lupin. And I think it mentions that, like, uh, when you're talking about that the Wikipedia will mention Lupin the Third Part Eight is the ninth Lupin the Third series. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, yeah, so... The, yeah, Japan has always had a big interest in the two related fields of heist and mystery stories. Um, which, is the which we'll get into because this yeah. book very much has both. But uh, I wanted to get into sort of our personal background with, with this uh, book. Um, it, it was a uh, Lupin the Third episode, a two-parter, where uh, Lupin and his uh, samurai friend Goemon, uh, I guess this is a spoiler, but whatever uh fall into like a holodeck situation where it recreates um um 1930s japan like under the imperial yeah, they're not um, initially sure why but they wake up in the uh guises and personas of their 1930s-esque uh ancestors or equivalents yeah so uh uh lupin the third himself is the gold mask which uh uh, we thought might have been a reference to Ogon Bat, a, uh, a Japanese uh, superhero character. But we looked it up, and it was actually um, very deep cut. It was an Akechi story called Gold Mask, in which the um, adversary turns out to be uh, Arsene Lupin, the original. <laughs> yeah, that's a um, bit of a spoiler, because it's a big reveal. Ah, the master criminal I've been uh, tracking this whole time is the world's premier master criminal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'll talk about a little more about that one later because I, I have since read the book. Um, uh, Zanagata was um, uh, Inspector uh, Namakoshi, who was um, who's a detective who appears uh, in a in a few Akechi stories, including the Gold Mask. Um, he's like the uh, I guess um, Lestrade character. <laughs> he's like he's the best detective the police have, but. He pales in comparison to a catchy sort of thing. Um, and um, uh, Fujiko was the black lizard um, who was, uh, we'll get into. Uh, yeah, in Lupin the Third, uh, Fujiko is Lupin's love interest and like a very uh, distilled archetype of the femme fatale thief. Yeah. So. Oh, and Akechi was actually in the episode. Yeah. Like a young Akechi was. was um, involved in the case and sort of ended up uh, helping them at the end and then it all turned out to be a hologram but it might have been based on real events <laughs> um so it was sort of like the the technological equivalent of it was all a dream or was it <laughs> not the strangest thing that's happened in lupin the third because lupin the third has had actual time travel yep uh um, anime <laughs> But yeah, so so that pretty much cemented. Yeah, I'm gonna read the Black Lizard. <laughs> uh, so I guess we'll get into the book itself. Uh, anybody want to give a plot summary? Uh, sure. Uh, let me. I'll, I can talk a bit about that if you want. It was just uh, essentially it introduces a super villainy, and it is it is actually really interesting how many. This is something we can talk about in a bit. But you know how how the detective. Uh, brilliant detective pulp genre which goes back to Edgar Allan Poe actually but uh, and then evolved through Arthur Conan Doyle and then into the 20th century and it did lay a lot of the groundwork for you know uh, superhero comics and and that kind of thing um, and also like spy comics like James Bond which also have supervillain type characters and all the pulp heroes who have that kind of character um, but uh, she so she's very much like face call, uh moving into the genre of a supervillain type character who isn't just uh 
committing a crime or even a string of crimes she's got a whole network and she has like a calling card and she she's sadistic and like a sociopath she does evil stuff for the sake of doing evil yeah uh, that goes far beyond sorry go ahead yeah i had to say that uh her introduction she goes by a number of aliases we never get her real name the black lizard is the closest to a real name she has but she really does come off as feeling like a very uh modern character she's very well fleshed out and it's like right from the beginning of the story it is a very strong characterization and this was a very fun character it's worth mentioning uh unusual for a detective story most of the story is told from the point of view of the criminal Right, that's that's a good point. Yeah, it's it is very much about her with uh, with uh, Kogoro uh, Akechi uh, kind of uh, being a, a almost a plot point. I think uh, I think it was uh, Andrew Hickey the other day who said uh, on Twitter that Sherlock Holmes isn't the protagonist of Sherlock Holmes stories. He's a uh, he's a plot device, and um, I think that you can see that in this as well. Like the, the detective is the plot device and the story is really about uh, the black lizard, even though she's the villain, the anti-hero, if you like, um, which is a, like, that's a classic form of storytelling that we don't see as much nowadays. It, it was the main thing in TV for a long time too, of like well, the, the protagonists I... would often be like there to solve the mystery, but the it would be about or, or so crack the case or, go to whatever planet but the, the the guest stars would almost be the protagonists of just that episode yeah that was that was kind of a recurring thing in a lot of storytelling Sorry, what i sort of disagree because it's uh superhero comics like the villain is often the one trying to do things and the the hero is just there to, often just to sort of maintain the status quo right yeah i mean it's 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 a blurred thing because like the 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 hero can still very prominently be the main character but it's just that like there are a lot of stories where the protagonists like almost just come in they're they're almost secondary to again like i say the guest star of that particular storyline that was a common thing on tv you see it in a lot of um of of uh, you know episodic stories that's all and you're definitely seeing it here like she it, as as ing says it's it's very much from her perspective uh, like the first I, thing you do, I wouldn't you, is say she... that Akechi is like passive in it. He's a very active agent. It's just his actions are the part that's going to be uh, largely done in the background or hinted at, and because we're just following from the perspective of the criminal. Structurally, it's a really interesting in that it uh, has both elements of the. Uh, uh, or, well, not who done it because we know who did it, but how did it, how done him, and mm -hmm. how catch him, how catch him, yeah, but, which but is it, how uh, the guy who created Columbo used to describe Columbo all the yeah. time. Yeah, it, it's a question: How is a catchy going to catch this person? But there also is elements: How did they pull off this crime? Even while we're looking from their perspective, how could they have pulled off something so seemingly impossible? And then we get the explanation for it. That's mm -hmm. actually not terribly far-fetched for how she pulls out the stuff it's uh uh or it's not impossible it is like extraordinary but it it basically is the thing that she is using kind of everything she does is using either like social hacking or almost sta like stage magicianry of right. misdirection and that sort of stuff to do 
everything. And, like, this is apparently a big part of her shtick. Like, her minions refer to her as a sorceress and seemingly may mm-hmm. believe that that's literal and not, like, fully on the end that everything she's doing is by uh, cunning and misdirection. Yeah, I mean, one of the first things we see her do in this, like, the first little segment, if you will, of this story is that uh, there's a, a guy who's committed a murder uh, and he goes to her kind of for help and she gets him out of it and as a result he becomes like like absolutely devoted to her without hesitation like he becomes he literally says i'm your slave from now on oh no no um, no and she says that she says that there's like the whole quote there where she actually first says that he uh he's now her dolly basically and then corrects it it's like actually you're less of a doll you're now my slave and the narrator just gives the comment this was not objectionable to him he rather liked it this book is also very horny in like a very m way but not in a way that's like overly explicit it really works like i i don't know if we're giving final reviews i really liked this story yeah well, the, um, the, the, the theme oh, of, I, I like, I just wanted dolls. to say, the, the S&M thing is a common thing with, um, with um, uh, Rampo. Uh, yes. Actually, yes. the um, murder on, in, on D. Hill, uh, uh, the uh, um, actual, it turns out it wasn't actually a murder. It was a BDSM scene gone wrong. Oh. Oh, like explicitly so, that. Yeah. yeah. It, he yep. had an interest in it. It shows up, and I have to say that... Uh, him including this interest has definitely uh helped enrich his work that that's really interesting because you wonder like japan his you know traditionally as the western view is that it's a very um like it's it's a, it's a fairly conservative culture and that they don't you know have flat, uh, you know like a lot of sex and nudity it's somewhat repressed in in some ways uh i mean i know that of course there's just like anyone else they have sex and and stuff in their culture but it's just interesting that a story written in the 20s and 30s that he would talk about that openly and there i i mean i don't know if there was a if there was any kind of pushback against that i know these these movie these stories were extremely popular well, at the i'm time, guessing so. that because uh the uh arsene lupin stories when being brought over at earlier and around the time with adaptations did actually have a bit of a moral panic caused around them i'd be shocked if there wasn't some blowback but rampo actually seemed uh kind of in general and especially for the time very sex positive and casually one of his other big things is that he helped uh a friend compile a, a study on homoeroticism in japanese history and uh ins- and ensured that that was published after his friend's uh, death because his friend died before it could be published and finished yeah actually maybe i shouldn't say uh conservative because i know that they've had a different attitude like they don't have the the christian attitude at least at that point in history so they they uh i guess they they maybe didn't have as much uh of a of a uh a pushback against sexuality. well there was pushback against it because this was also done in you know the post-war era so this was after a time of basically uh, reconstructing the culture after a fascist reconstruction. And that included a lot of, like, you know, recontextualizing or burying of history. And the his work in homoeroticism was a lot of, like... It, he, like, explicitly made the argument that uh, 
uh, male erotic love is so prominent in literature there that it's like historical denialism to edit it and censor it out and that we yeah. that basically we need to have an understanding of gay love in order to understand literature and his friend specifically did like a whole thing that it's like Japan has had a whole tradition of gay romance that has been uh, largely erased in the war y years that he wanted mm. to bring people's attention back to like right. pushing back against I guess a, a sex negative uh, sexual conservatism that comes with fascism right and right. It, it him and his friend apparently had like a deal in contest to see like how much homoeroticism they could research and study and the deal was that Rampo would take the west and his friend would take the stuff at home and the, I, I guess part of the joke was to prove that it's like look I took all of the gay erotica from all the rest of the world and my friend taking only our native born gay erotica still kept up with me this is how gay our history is <laughs> and yeah. uh, it said and it, from what I can gather, he said this rather positively. This wasn't, like, a shameful thing. It seems, from what I can gather, that actually he was uh, oddly pivotal in, uh, like, queer analysis for Japanese literature. Hmm. Yeah. Well, okay, so, all right, very interesting then. Yeah, yeah and I, it's you... worth mentioning that there is, like, as you said, the Western view that, like, of japan being repressed but you know there is also the thing that like observing the media can have a lot of sexualization and and, and a lot of it comes from the uh holdovers of like the weird uh yellow peril stuff where there's like the dual thing of the asian foreigners are both perverts but also like uh sexually impotent and non-masculine like that's a weird like victorian era thing that got that got really revived in the 80s on japan specifically when there was the whole fear with japan's boom economy that they were going to mm. be america's cyberpunk overlords yeah right yeah exactly the blade runner and thing. yeah I can't, and i bring up this fact again when it comes to there's the understanding that japanese is conservative in nature or in politics, and part of that is because the uh, rough equivalent of, like, the Conservative Party has been the dominant political party since uh, the end of war re reconstruction for most of the time. But Japan is also the country that has the largest communist party outside right. of a country that is, like, just officially communist. And I believe yeah, it's I, the I... third largest party. Like, it is a... the basically radical left communist party is a viable political force in japan yeah anyway so uh getting back to the story though um anyway so uh yeah it's we see uh essentially it's uh you know going point by point in the plot is not there's no point but essentially she um she uh hatches a plan because she loves jewels and she's a jewel thief that's sort of her main thing uh she hatches a plan to uh steal uh uh, to kidnap the daughter of a major jewel merchant. And uh, she ends up, like, actually having a casual encounter with Akechi Kagoro while not revealing who she is. Um, although, I guess you could interpret it as him 
knowing who she is because she literally says, well, this lady's going to kidnap uh, this the, the, the jeweler's daughter. I bet you anything she'll pull it off. And Akechi says, well, I bet you you won't uh, or she won't. Um, and it's at that point, it's hard to believe he yeah. doesn't know who she is. <laughs> and, <laughs> but maybe, uh, and to maybe clarify for this, that because part one of this plan is a long con there where under one of her aliases, she has befriended uh, her would-be victim and endeared herself to the family to the point that they see her as a dear family friend. So, and she, as the Black Lizard, has been sending these threatening ransom notes, basically telling Mr. Awasi, who is the father that i'm gonna kidnap your daughter and at this whole time they're just saying i can't believe this horrible woman keeps threatening to uh kidnap our daughter what do you say about this our dearest and most trusted friend <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes it was as you say a long con and she's one of these uh criminals who's like had so much success and is so rich that she's doing it for the challenge not for like i need money <laughs> and i need jewels it's it's very much uh, i i would like to uh you know I'd like to see if I can pull off this ice because the point of this is not to kidnap the daughter herself per se. It's to, um, it's to get hold of, uh, this very rare jewel. What was it, Phil? The, what was the jewel called? The star? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, sorry. Star of Egypt, I believe. Star of Egypt. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. At um, first, but then there's also a strong implication that there is a strong, uh, sadomasochistic homoerotic reason for wanting to kidnap the daughter as well right like she has at some point switched her plan that rather than the jewel being her goal getting the jewel and and still keeping the daughter becomes the plan right yeah yeah it's yeah it it definitely goes into like she's got something going on with the daughter like by the end of the story and really just and of course that that is also to ratchet up the tension of like we don't ultimately really care if she gets away with a jewel. We do care if yes. she, you know, <laughs> gets away with this girl to whom things get very dark. Uh, yeah, with, but uh, where, where be, things are gonna before go that, the thi- the girl. sort of like dramatic irony of having her sitting in the lounge uh, talking with Akechi because Akechi has been hired as the bodyguard to prevent this kidnapping. And they basically make a wager that she will give up all her... Uh, all her jewelry if the Black Lizard fails, and if the Black Lizard succeeds, he will give up being a detective. Right, yeah. Which is funny because he sa- she's, he says, like, well, that's no big deal to me. I can give up my job anytime. But to give up your jewelry to a woman, that's like giving up whatever. <laughs> like so, He had some... I, now, he might have been razzing her. Like, yes, it the, might have been uh, deliberately. My interpretation, yeah. that definitely felt like intentionally needling because he... To Akechi's uh, credit, he's immediately suspicious of this woman. Yeah, as you would expect. That's not exactly subtle, just like, hey, person I've but never met, also let's make has... a deal. Like, this yeah, but then it also has that met. sort of the reveal was that she wasn't trying terribly to hide that she was the Black Lizard because her plan was that while this distraction was going on, while Akechi was dealing with the fact that, okay, the Black Lizard is right here, but how can I prove it? Her compatriots were just kidnapping the girl underneath their nose. This was a misdirection. Or, uh, no, had already done it. Yeah, had already done it hours ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, that's right. But and, and and then it has the reveal that Akechi, it's like, ah, yeah, so that, uh, that's a very good misdirection. It absolutely would, it, would have worked. If I hadn't entrusted my 
uh, network to be careful bodyguards in case that I had a slip up like this. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's a that's a common Akechi thing too. He he likes to uh, employ agents, and he has a whole network that sort of work work for him and spy for him and stuff. Yeah, he, like he also the, has um, like the like uh, Sherlock Holmes's homeless network, but it. Oh yeah, that was on the uh, the show. Uh, I think it was called the uh, Baker Street Irregulars in the books. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Akechi it, it also more, has. It was more um, the the urchins, uh, I think, than the, than yeah. In the show, it was in the modern show, it was like a as you say, homeless people. In the in the show, it was like a bunch of lovable chimney sweep type urchins who would run around yeah, and give but them it, information. In uh, the book, it is a good contrast that the Black Lizard's plan involves kind of a very. It's not terribly complicated, but it is a clever setup where, because of the calling cards and everything, they think the kidnapping is going to happen at a specific time, and it's already happened hours previous, and she's just replaced uh, the girl with a dummy so it looks like she's been sleeping, you know, so that her uh, accomplice can get uh, far away by the time they realize she's leaving, but Akechi, the way Akechi had countered that is a very simple one, is that he just instructed his uh, associates to follow anybody who left the hotel. Right. So it's just, and... no matter how sus how unsuspicious they were, so it, I, I don't know, it's a very fun one that it's like, yes, your very well laid out plan is faulted by my technically very boring, but very meticulous security detail. <laughs> Yeah. Now, how did that play out again? There's sort of two attempts to kidnap her. Well, and... that's the first one, and that, like, starts out the rivalry. So then they have that she's there, and then she manages to make a daring escape because she had pickpocketed a gun from uh, someone else there and had actually one-upped by Akechi by pickpocketing the door to the room that he had locked before. So she's able to escape out from under his nose before he's even able to realize that she pickpocketed that, uh, oh, and also, Akechi had... uh, sent down uh, a message to, you know, stop any woman who comes out, and she came uh, down disguised as a man. Yeah, she is a master of disguise in this, and both of dressing as w uh, women and men, like, I guess the lizard having a bit of a chameleon thing, and... Mm. Well, and then so then it's it's uh you know a second attempt with everyone on their guard, and I I yeah did after that like... she's even more determined to get this kidnapping out there because uh she she has to like regain her reputation, so she comes up with kind of an even more, uh, but and because security has been ramped up so much that the daughter is now basically forced to live in only one room of her family's estate and is not allowed out and is under constant surveillance, there has to be an even more elaborate plan. Right. And and I really liked this uh, because they have to deliver furniture into the room. Um, and uh, so they they deliver the furniture. Then hours later, they come in and discover like a, a seemingly a homeless man living on, sitting on the couch and the girl is gone. And everyone kind of, freaks out and and, and the homeless man is barfed all over the couch yeah it's just right. completely soiled the couch <laughs> it, it's just the sofa, like yeah and right like this just absolute seemingly drunkard that's just spewing things out every end this, this disgusting person so they immediately like chuck this disgusting sofa now 
and a catchy oh, oh, yeah yeah they yeah. they uh, uh take out uh they call it uh to be uh reupholstered immediately like that's their second thing after realizing that this that the daughter's been kidnapped you know we we got to reupholster this couch um so the in their um, defense it was the 30s it's not like you could get a uh, tide pen and it apparently <laughs> absolutely reeked so yeah right so uh the their um the uh the furniture people come really early and and pick up the couch and it turns out those were the black lizards uh um henchmen and the uh the girl was actually stored inside the couch and yeah, that's also and how the homeless man got it got in yeah and the homeless man was uh i forget if it was the black lizard in disguise or just one of her no it was the same guy that she sort right, of it was one roped of her into her service in disguise at the beginning, as yeah. a homeless man right and yeah at this point, it takes a sharp veer into just Grant Morrison Animal Man comic territory, because Akechi figures this out by checking a book that he had once read called The Human Couch, which was a book, which was a story by Edogawa Rampo, like <laughs> a real story that he had previously written, the sort of pre- uh, premise the black lizard got the idea for hiding in furniture from and Akechi figures it out by having read the same short story and it it's just weird that the plot point is oh yes this premier japanese author that we both know about <laughs> who's also very handsome yeah and, uh, virile <laughs> uh, it's not yeah. an Akechi story to be fair no it's not an Akechi story it's uh, a a separate one but i i um I'm familiar with The Human Couch because uh, Junji Ito did an adaptation of it. So, and uh, not quite realizing that was also by Rampo seeing it referenced here was like a bit of like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, so he does actually, so she does actually get kidnapped because of course she was in the couch. Um, and uh, he does go after her. She ends up on a, um, uh, a boat uh in the canal um and uh this is the main part of the novel where we're actually seeing it from a Kate's point of view um and uh he yeah, does well, manage before that first there's a trade-off at a amusement park at right a, a tower for the diamond so she gets the diamond and then so she gets the father to give her the diamond and then basically uh, says, yeah, I'm not giving your daughter back, and if you try to do anything to me, we're in perfect light of sight of my men, and they have orders to immediately kill your daughter, so she pieces out. But right. Akechi manages to follow her, himself having taken a disguise, and sort of like the theme there, while her disguises are like very impressive and elaborate, he disguises himself just by putting on workman's overall, uh, overalls and bandages around his head which he explains as him having a bad respiratory and ear infection right yeah and then she comes to him and his uh supposed wife yeah uh, to uh, to say hey can i uh switch places with you basically yeah, like she like offers these mean me- these uh my like abusive husband is out to get me please switch clothes with me so i can escape right which that I wouldn't take that deal if that's what was going on personally. I mean, that's uh, I mean, it obviously works, but uh, you know, it's it that that's where it felt a little bit strained, like that she was able to find someone 
uh, who could uh, who was willing to switch places with her so so uh, effectively. And then it furthermore it it was a catchy in disguise that she was doing that with. You know that was a, that that's where it strained credibility well, a little it, bit. It's I thought, a line in my mind. here one that. I think she does offer to reimburse them, like pay them too, like they can keep her jewelry mm-hmm. as payment. Is the sort of thing she That's said tr- to be very yeah. charismatic, very convincing. And at this point, Akechi has sort of read up on her mo and is managed and like has an idea of how she does this. So he's he has also made sure that only hit. It's like okay, this is the drop off point. The only people she's made sure that the only people that uh, as many of her men are going to be at this place as possible, and Akechi has made sure that everyone else is going to be his, him, and his associates. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's helps to have a network for sure, which she also has. So it's kind of yeah. network versus network, which is kind of funny. It, it but, is uh, a she... one there where it becomes about here who is uh, better uh, at employee management and staff. <laughs> And, uh, staff resourcing. Um, yeah, it, it reminded me of uh, a, a little bit uh, in a less science fiction sense, but like that thing from um, I don't know, Bill and Ted, where it's uh, yeah, but I'll go back in time and yeah. <laughs> and um, right. and Play do this. Key. Well, I'll go back in time before you went back in time, and <laughs> yeah, or I'd say it's fantastical, but to be fair, it is not. It is nothing that requires actually omniscience to plan out. It is stated that it's like, yeah, this is kind of the stuff that uh, actual con artists or magicians rely on as well. Yeah, it's true. It's it's that's it's not that far from something that that people like that have to do. To, you know, you, uh, I almost want to say he's like he had five different plans in operation and this was the one that paid yeah, off, it right? Is, you know? Yeah, it is possibly also implied that, okay, if they didn't go to them, there were other contingencies to have her followed, but this worked out. Right. Yeah, and uh, I believe we were going to, uh, we brought this up earlier, but the connection between detective stories and heist stories is very clear here. Um but and uh, high stories and con men stories. So like things like uh, Lupin the Third, Arsène Lupin, um, the the new French Lupin show, which is actually pretty good, um, or you know Ocean's Eleven, that sort of thing, where there's there's plans within plans and you know counter plans and you know. Uh, and the plan has to go wrong. So how? What's yeah, the improvising? Uh, but then it turns out that that was all part of the plan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Or that exactly. they, or that they had something that it lets them salvage it. But yeah, it is at the halfway point. It becomes there, despite the fact that the Black Lizard's uh, heist is successful. It then becomes the story of Akechi's heist because it he's using this as a way to tail her and to infiltrate her compound and to find out exactly where her secret hideout is. Right. Which is a as it turns out is a boat in the middle of the ocean. Well, it <laughs> No, it's it's a it's a underground yeah, cave gets that to she's it set through, up. Uh, you get to it through a boat, but it's like a warehouse that she set up and where she then goes from like just being a femme fatale thief into full bond villain because mm. her hideout is a full-on museum she's made. Yeah. to display everything she's stolen and that and it's like okay that's weird that's like james bond territory and i mean then uh, she lupin go- has the same thing yeah. he has a lot of, like the original arsene lupin has museums stashed all over the world and 
just his private collection. But yeah, yeah, and the on. series Lupin the Third has played with the idea that this Lupin either does it or people assume that he does, and it turns out he actually does it because he doesn't care that much about retaining anything he steals. <laughs> the joy is in stealing it. Once that's done, he kind of loses interest. Um, uh, and then we get the final reveal there for, like, what why she wants uh, the daughter, and it's like, now she takes a turn into a Hannibal yeah. Into a Hannibal villain because it's revealed it's a museum and there's a natural history wing which has taxidermied animals and it it flied people she's found particularly attractive that she's decided must be preserved permanently as trophies of her uh, conquest. So there are just a hall full of taxidermied humans that she has had uh, killed and skinned because they were so beautiful she can't ever bear to ha- to part with them. And sh- she, yeah. like, throws the daughter in a jail with a man that she's kidnapped because she wants to turn them into an Adam and Eve art exhibit. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, it's very, v- it gets very messed up at that point. Um, and furthermore, she still has an alive person in a cage as well. Yeah. Um, which is where she sticks the daughter as well um, that that she kidnapped. And that's sort of the, the, the race for the last uh, segment of the book. But then it turns out there... the daughter had actually been switched with an identical. Yeah, yeah. That, that's sort of a thing that we get that uh, Akechi... This is set up before that Akechi carefully scouted out somebody who could pass as the daughter and was dealt on the luck and just offered her an obscene amount of money to take over the life of the daughter so they could do a swap. So under- all the thing with the sofa was actually the, the double. Yeah, under the thing there that it's like, I'm not going to risk actually losing again, so even if I lose, I win. Um, But also, Akechi doesn't want this innocent person to wind up being killed either. So Akechi has infiltra- uh, infiltrated by following them onto the barge that gets to the lair. But she's aware that somebody has infiltrated the barge and eventually, via the original sofa, comes to believe that Akechi is hiding in there because there's somebody in there. And, uh, and like, uh, asks if it's Akechi in there and his voice confirms it. And then she, like, sweet talks him like she's gonna, like, let him live because this is a delightfully romantic rendezvous. And then her men just chain up the sofa and throw it overboard. Right. Uh, so she's pretty much convinced that she's managed to kill Akechi until her men start coming to her convinced that her museum is haunted because, like, people keep putting... Because cl- somebody, when no one's looking, pe- keeps putting clothes on the human man- on the human taxidermy and doing, like, other things of, like, moving things when no one's there and, like, driving paranoia. And... It's like, as the reader, we can assume that Akechi has survived and is basically d- be doing, like, a diehard in this museum and engaging in a bit of prolonged psychological warfare at her, uh, w- wearing down her defenses by a paranoia by not coming out and facing her directly, but just messing with her stuff. And that leads to, like, the final Shakus, where, ev- where eventually he reveals himself, she's caught, and... He reveals exactly how he did it. It's like, oh yeah, I survived the sofa. I had just shoved one of your guys at the sofa. 
uh, he was knocked out and I was just hiding in the closet and used ventriloquism so that it seemed like my voice was coming from the sofa. <laughs> and since then I've been disguised as him. Yeah, disguised yeah. as him and actually managed to disappear and like change disguises and replace several other minions like warping up the chain of command like uh, a hitman gamer solid snake here it's actually very fun and the final reveal there is that uh where she says but i still have you out uh numbered no matter how many of my men you've managed to capture it's like that's where that's where you're wrong and snaps his fingers and all the mannequins turn out to actually have been replaced by police at one point. And they take <laughs> out and they stop doing their frozen pose. And the narrator even says, there is no point to this other than the fact that Akechi really wanted a traumatic <laughs> reveal. Yeah, yeah, they say that. It's like, this seems like you're pulling an elaborate prank. But I mean, you know, it's f fair enough. She pulls elaborate pranks yeah. on him. So, you know, he pulls an and elaborate prank right back. The, the narrator... I really like the narrative voice of the story. The narrator is very conversational and warm in talking with uh, the reader. It's very yeah. much the idea. It's very much has the vibe, a conversational vibe of somebody who has a really good story they want to tell you over lunch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a um, in the gold mask, the the one with Arsène Lupin. Um, Akechi actually figures out that it's Lupin early on in the story. And writes it down, but uh, the and the narrator said, "I'm not going to tell you what he wrote down, but keep in mind that Akechi already knew at this point." Yeah, we also do get to see the thing when the double is hired, and it's by somebody in disguise. And the narrator says that we're not going to reveal who this uh, mysterious guy hiring is until the end. But I assure you, it's not a random diversion. It will turn out to be important. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very it's very like perhaps yeah, he he keeps like interjecting as like perhaps you're thinking that this means nothing because of blah or perhaps you're thinking I've just made a mistake as the writer of this story by introducing another by saying she walked in through the door when she was at another place. But in fact this will be revealed in time if you keep yeah, reading. There's a very you know, uh almost uh, lemony snicket esque, uh very yeah. personal <laughs> tone. Yeah in that the narrator is a character in of themselves yeah, in a yeah, way exactly. that is very charming. And then the sort of end of the story is that rather than be taken alive, the black lizard uh, kills herself with poison and ends with a sort of a catchy kind of being a bit disturbed that her dying affected him more than he thought it would. Right. And and for that matter, the black the black lizard gets all choked up at one point when she thinks Akechi has died, and yeah. she starts getting yeah, like she starts like almost uh ah I've defeated it's you know the Joker in the animated episode where he thinks he's killed Bat where Batman's died and he's all he's actually legitimately kind of sad you know it's, it's yeah that there's kind the of idea that this battle of wits has bred a sort of intimacy that neither one is actually uh comfortable or fully aware of and a bit disturbed that they. <laughs> like, feel something when the other has died, ra that they feel anything when the other one is dead other than, you know, triumph of defeating an adversary. Um, I'm not sure. I, I can't remember if this was in the original book, but in both of the movie adaptations that I saw, um, when um, her men throw uh, uh, the sofa with the guy in it overboard and she thinks they've killed Akechi, she, she becomes sort of cold to her men because she doesn't, like 
she feels sad that they they've killed Akechi, and she'll only confide in the one guy who was who was away at the time, and that turns out to be Akechi himself. Yeah, I think that I a that or version of it is in the original story. Yeah, it's really played up in both movies that they're they're basically in love with each other, even though they're trying to stop each other. Mm. Yeah, right. Um, That's so, yeah. So yeah, the, the movies. Uh, one was from '61. Uh, uh, it's considered the less campy version, though I, I don't see why. It's a straight-up musical. It's got several musical numbers that I don't think are diegetic, <laughs> unless these characters just sing and dance randomly. Um, uh, they're they're both, a, and the the other one was made in '68, and it's considered a camp classic. Um, but I think it's mostly just because the uh, the Black Lizard herself is played by a uh, a drag queen uh, who was like a famous, like a, I guess, 60s Japan equivalent of RuPaul, sort of like a famous drag queen. Um, but it's it's played, it's not played as a joke. So, like, it takes, it treats the character as a woman and a, a beautiful woman. And, um, yeah. I, I think both versions were actually pretty fun. Uh, uh well made and all that there's another one from uh 2017 that's a tv movie that i wasn't able to track down any copy of rampo later wrote after the war wrote uh, uh ch- sort of kids books like for for younger readers uh featuring a catchy uh though the main character was uh, a uh frequent sort of watson character his sidekick um um uh, kobayashi um and the, these stories uh, featured the uh, recurring villain, the fiend with twenty faces, who's sort of um, Arsène Lupin's ty- style uh, master of disguise. Only nobody's ever seen his true face because he's always has different uh, disguises. Um, and they they actually made a movie of like about the fiend with twenty faces uh, in um, I think. Uh, Fairly recent. Let's see. Uh, it's called K Twenty uh, Legend of the Mask. Yeah, two thousand eight. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of it feels like uh, a throwback to those um, uh, movies in the nineties when like uh, uh, you know Batman eighty nine came out and Hollywood thought the best way to replicate the ex- the success of this is to adapt a bunch of pulp characters nobody's heard of. <laughs> um, and it so sort of that that era of like the Rocketeer and the Shadow and Phantom, and I love these movies, but like wasn't a very wise financial decision. Uh, yeah. So yeah, the the K twenty movie it's set in like an alternate uh, uh, past. So like it's a diesel punk sort of deal. Uh, it's set in a, a world where World War Two never happened, but uh, unfortunately that meant that uh, Japan's sort of fascist government continued and there's a huge gap between the uh, rich and the poor uh Akechi's in it as an antagonist uh um and it, it has a really um interesting twist at the end that i don't want to give away because i think the movie's worth watching but uh okay. um it's it's a sort of a wild take on these particular characters um yeah and it, uh, like i said the uh fiend with 20 faces character is sort of uh um came out of i i think of the the gold mask book that he wrote earlier in 1930 uh the one where arsene lupin is the villain um though arsene lupin is sort of treated um and and the reason that this book exists basically is um 
of course, Arsene Lupin early on went up against Sherlock Holmes, and then Herlock Sholmes. And Herlock uh, Sholmes they were, in later publishing after. Yeah, because they were the, uh, got the in lawyer. trouble with the Doyle estate. <laughs> uh, but um, so you know, it, it's um, uh, uh, Maurice LeBlanc setting up his character against um, the greatest detective and seeing who wins, and it usually comes out as a draw. So in this case, it's uh, it's a similar thing setting up the greatest criminal in Europe against the greatest detective in Japan sort of deal. Um, though, um, yeah, Lupin's actually racist, which sort of surprised me. Like, explicitly in the book, he's... Because um, um, uh, Lupin usually has a thing where he doesn't kill anybody. Like, he, he keeps his hands bloodless. But he actually kills some Japanese people. And um, Akechi asked him about this, and Lupin just said, they're Japanese, what, what do I care? And uh, Akechi seems, like, genuinely just disappointed in this guy. Like, hmm. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> I well, thought when you were did better that, than this. <laughs> when did that come out again? Uh, 1930. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth See, pointing out that his, uh, uh, that his uh, great-grandson it does not seem to be racist. Does not seem to be racist, but also definitely does not hold the idea that uh, he should avoid killing people. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, um, he generally avoids killing people needlessly, but th- there is Yeah, not... Lupin the Third kills a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, yeah it, 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 it's and not that, his I mean, go-to this... move, but when there's people that need a killing, uh, he does not <laughs> hesitate. But it's also worth noting this is the lead-up to... Uh, World War Two, there might be some, <laughs> there might be some uh, political influence there of, and, well, and I, I mean, mean, in some ways, not it's wrong. It's 1930, so yeah. it's it's actually way before that. So, hmm. well, like, I mean, they also, in a sense, weren't wrong. There were a lot of Westerners yeah, who didn't and it, care it, it, if Japanese people The text people actually interdied, points you know? out one of the original uh, uh, LeBlanc Lupin stories has um, uh, Lupin actually murder some Moroccan people. So. Obviously, this was a thing in the original stories, and this book's just sort of highlighting that. Mm. I just found it interesting that they would they would play up this aspect so much, but it does make sense. It's also interesting because Japan, uh, as we mentioned, has had an interest in Arsène Lupin since early on, um, but they often actually portray him as like a real jerk, <laughs> um, even more so than than he is in the French books, where he's more like a lovable rogue, um, like. Uh, yeah, speaking of the the uh, prequel Loop on the Third series, uh, I'm currently watching that, and because um, it's coming out as we're recording this, and they they did an episode with uh, the original Arsène Lupin, his his grandfather showing up, and he's just a complete bastard in that episode. So, yeah. Well, he's a criminal, I suppose. Uh, but I yeah, don't know but much. he's like a n- not in a fun like. A bastard, but not in a in a fun roguish way. He's just like, kind of uh, cruel and callous to people. Mm. Also, ever also uh, most of the protagonists in Lupin the Third are criminals. Uh, one thing I wanted to share with the uh, m- the man or the beast of twenty one faces is that there's a weird true crime slash unsolved crime link to that because in. 84, there was a string of seemingly anti-corporate uh, terrorism and blackmail crimes uh, targeting largely confectionist companies around the region of uh, Kansai and the group responsible in their uh, ransom notes or demands and letters to the 
police refer to themselves as the man of 21 faces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Apparently, yeah, that was uh, mentioned in the foreword of the book that I that I that we read or the version that we read of the Black Lizard. Yeah, and that like... is a, that's a really interesting bit of just uh, to this day unsolved crime. They did a couple of uh, kidnappings of like uh, executives and you know released for ransom, and then uh, after that, like targeted specific companies they seem to have grudges with, and just released. Uh, it was like confectionery, like candy companies, and they managed to package their own version of like the food, but with the caption that just had like at a big banner on the bottom, "Warning: contains cyanide or contains poison," and slipped those into distribution like supermarkets, and then announced that they had done it, and and pretty much said that okay, you uh, give the money at this drop, or the next batch won't have the warning on them. It is of like it's stuff that does sound like it comes out of it a catchy novel, <laughs> and yeah. you know we uh, said that a lot of a catchy stuff was like far fetched, but this happened. And to his credit, the actual police did not crack this case. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Well, they didn't have a catchy work. No. Them. Yeah, no. exactly. That's why you got to have the, a master. Detective. And that's why, like in Death Note, Japan then invested heavily in an infrastructure to raise child detectives. <laughs> <laughs> And it was, it's interesting, though, that we came out with this one, like, as I say, at a time when, like, Glass Onion just came out, and it's, there's a bit of an interest in uh, detective fiction of, like, the old-timey school, which is, uh, you know, we, we, we sort of, a couple of times we've released an episode, and it just sort of slotted into what people were talking about at the time, so, you know, this was good timing on this one. And uh, this is also, by the way, our finale for the season. Uh, we're, we're ending the season here. We're going to take uh, a few months off. Uh, before we come back, we've got a few things planned. Uh, we won't be completely gone. We're going to be we're releasing our... Um, we've made some mini-sodes uh, last year, just little quick episodes about short stories and uh, that were significant, which actually ended up being almost as long as most episodes. <laughs> yeah, I think they're both around 50 minutes. So yeah. like oh, and how did we zero, forget so. to mention this is appropriate since the story take uh, starts taking to place at a Christmas party, so... Oh, yeah. That's right. Oh yeah, it got we got a, a double. Yeah, very very. It was our Christmas episode, inadvertent Christmas <laughs> episode. Um, but yeah, recorded so recorded the day after New Year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we we got a uh, Phil wasn't feeling too well for a while, so we did uh, delay it a bit. Yeah. But uh, yeah, fair enough. Well, uh, so we will wish Happy New Year to everyone, and yeah, just keep uh, keep your eyes peeled. There'll be some new content for a while, but we'll probably be back in like May or thereabouts. Um, We'll see where we go from here. Uh, well, we've solved the case for this week, and in fact, this season. We've been criminal mastermind and fiendish temptress, Philip Rice, and the great detective, Adam Prosser. Joining us was Gentleman Thief and Master of Disguise, Ing. Uh, do you have anything to plug, Ing? Yes, okay. Uh, yeah, I do a comic with Charlotte Finn at whatisbrandecho.com. And put that in directly, or do what it, or Brand Echo webcomic, and hopefully it'll come up. And I also have a Patreon under Ing for Art, where I put up art stuff. That's the uh, number four, right? Yeah, you could just search uh, Ing and Patreon, and you'll find me there. Our producer was Alex Ross of the Tokyo Metropolitan Police, and our hot jazz theme song was played by Jack Furyk. 
Uh, just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, if you just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or what-mad-universe.pinecast.co has all the links to everything, uh, including our socials. You can follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast, or Prankster36 for me, or Spear Hafok A for Philip. Uh, I guess uh, similar similar things on Mastodon. We haven't really got set up on Mastodon or, uh, or Hive yet, but we should do that. We'll be getting it set up soon, I think. Uh, you should also check out HeroesLive.tv, where you can read both the Apex Society and Ing's uh, webcomic, um, uh, the... Uh, um, uh, Brand the, Echo. Brand Echo, sorry. Thank you. Brand Echo. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, uh, it's uh, still going. There's some good stuff there. Check it out. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll plug individually my webcomic, The Apex Society. Uh, uh, current issue, as I said, is set in... 30s Japan, and there's a there's a character um, who's an original character is uh, Akechi's fail son nephew, uh, <laughs> um, who's sort of the stand-in for Zenigata, looking at you know being yeah. Anyway, um, uh, there's fun stuff. I'm working hard on it. It's still going. Um, so yeah. So until next season, keep on the lookout for local like switcheroos and sinister sofas. <laughs>